This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It really is an honor and a privilege to introduce our speaker tonight. We've been so excited at the Stein Institute the last few months about this talk. So we're so thrilled to have uh, Dr. Darlene Menini here with us tonight. Dr. Menini is author of the Emotional Toolkit and creator of the UCLA Undergraduate Wellbeing Course, Life Skills. She has a PhD in clinical psychology and a master's in public health. Dr. Menini lectures and designs interventions that highlight three key areas, resilience, emotional intelligence, and mindfulness. With an with an interest in media's power to inspire and enlighten, Dr. Menini founded and was artistic director of UCLA's Kaleidoscope Theater, a performance troupe using storytelling to positively impact well-being. She also hosted the Emotional Toolkit series on XM Radio and the Dr. Darlene Menini show for Clear Channel in Los Angeles. And she also was a contributor to Dr. Drew's TV show, Life Changers. Her work has been featured on media outlets such as CNN, PBS, and PR. Dr. Menini is currently on staff at UCLA Extension, where she develops programs to help keep people thrive in the workplace. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Darlene Menini. Thank you. I apologize for being so short. Uh, the turnout for this was so... Um, Wonderful that the only thing I could think of is that everybody needed a, a, a talk on resilience because today is April 15th, tax day. So I hope that we will all leave soothed and relaxed uh, today. Um, it really is such an honor to be invited to come and speak here at the Stein Institute. I was so thrilled to be invited because I feel like I'm among kindred spirits here. And uh, so much of what we talk about in not just aging, but in life in general, is what's wrong with us and how do we repair. And there is a place for that. There is a place to soothe our psyche and our ailing body. But there is also a time to say what is right with us, what is good, what is positive, and also what is possible. I think that's something that we never really hear about, what is possible in our lives. And so um, the fact that, you know, this is the work that you're doing here is near and dear to my heart, and, and uh, I'm, by the turnout, I'm sure, near and dear to yours as well. I know that the center is doing a lot of innovative work on wisdom, resilience, and optimism, and we're learning just how powerful those traits can be in enhancing our well-being and our lives in general. And it's not relegated to any one particular population. It's something that people need to learn from 9 to 90. And the good news is that all of the things that we are talking about are things that can be learned. And that's the part that's so exciting to me. So what I want to do, I have a few goals for tonight. And one of them is, um, let me just find my clicker here. Um, I want to introduce you, if you don't already know, to six scientists that are doing really fascinating research that, and what, the reason I like what they're doing is because it's directly relevant to your life. And I call them my scientific rock stars. So I'm going to introduce you to six scientific rock stars. In addition, I want to talk about what specific strategies they have gleaned from their research that have direct relevance to your life. 
And my goal is that when you leave here this evening, you will have somewhat of an emotional toolkit that you can draw from and use these tools immediately for your own well-being. So one of the things I want to start off by looking at is just to give you a little background story of why it is that I am so passionate about what I do and the idea of well-being in general. I grew up uh, on the East Coast. We've talked about this, lots of people here from the East Coast, in a very tight-knit New York Italian family. And we grew up on the coast of Long Island, so that means we spent a lot of our summers at the beach and my brothers and I playing silly pranks on each other. So I really had a very wonderful childhood. And as part of that, though, also was my father had a lot of chronic illnesses. He had five heart attacks, two bypass surgeries, cancer. And watching my dad and my mom endure a lot of these conditions really impacted me greatly in two ways. One is that it helped me realize the preciousness of life, and it also made me very interested in understanding what does it take to live a a resilient life and to have well-being, no matter what the circumstances might be. So when it came time to go to college, I became interested in studying both psychology and behavioral health. And behavioral health really just looks at what are the behaviors and the actions that we can take purposefully to enhance our well-being. Now, when I got my degree, I was considered an expert in human behavior. And that meant that I knew all about Freud. I knew all of his psychosexual stages. I knew about the id and the ego and the superego. And I was very well-versed in that. I also knew how to teach a rat to press a lever and get a food pellet. And all of this was very foundational in my training and very fascinating and very interesting. And I'm glad that I learned all of it. The only problem was that as this expert in human behavior that I was, what I didn't really get was how to figure out how to deal with my own life and my own hard times. And that was not part of my training. And so when it came time for me to to embark on my own career, it began at UCLA teaching and helping undergraduate students to thrive in their life. And um, there were 25,000 students undergrad, and my job was to help them enhance their well-being. And so what I realized that I really wanted to do was to take all of the science and the theories that I learned and transform it into something practical that students could really use to enhance their well-being. And one of the people, my first rock star that I want to introduce you to, you may know him already, is John Kabat-Zinn. John Kabat-Zinn is a professor emeriti at the University of Massachusetts, and he created the renowned Stress Reduction Clinic. And if any of you watch Oprah, he was on this Sunday, Super Soul Sunday. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about his work later. But he had a phrase that when I heard it, I realized that this was the motto for all of the work that I do. And it's this. You can stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And I think in life... This is life. Life has good things, and it has challenging things. And 
there's really not a lot that we can do to change all of our circumstances, but what we can do is learn how to surf them and learn how to navigate them. So I realized that my job at UCLA was to be a surfing teacher, and that's what I set out to do. So the first thing that I worked on was a course called Life Skills. And this course was for undergraduate women, not because women have more problems than anybody else, but because we had a grant. And so we started there, although the class later uh, expanded to men and women. But initially, the class was designed to focus on giving them resource-based strategies to navigate the ups and downs of their life. And you might say, well, what kind of problem does a 20-year-old have? Well, lots of them. They're dealing with anxiety about the future. You know, I've worked so hard in school. What's going to happen when I graduate? Will I get a job? Will I make it or will I fail? Uh, How am I doing in school? It's very pressure-filled. I have so many classes. I'm working. Complexities with relationships, with roommates, with, with friends, with family members, with romantic partners, feeling lonely because now I'm away from school, away from my support system for the first time, trying to navigate this world alone. So there's a lot of emotional issues that students are dealing with. And so they were really ripe for an intervention to really give them some skills so that they can learn how to surf their life. And what we found after assessing the students was that by learning these simple skills across numerous measures, their well-being was improved. Across five different measures, they just felt better about their lives. Anecdotally, they would tell me that they were just happier, they were calmer, they weren't so nervous. One student said, you know, when I took my midterm, usually I'm all freaked out about it, but I took it and I was calm and I wasn't upset and I did well, but what's wrong with me? Something's wrong with me. It's, it's as if it became so normative to feel stressed that when they felt well, it felt like something was wrong. The response to the class and the changes the students saw was so gratifying, and I was so thankful to see that these tools could really make a difference in their lives. Well, what happened next was something that I had not anticipated at all, and that is that my students started to tell me that their mothers were calling them on a regular basis to find out what they were learning, either because they saw such a change in their daughters or because their daughters were learning skills that they wanted to know because they had never learned these things before. And if you think about it in your own life, most of us have never really learned the skills that we need to navigate our life. And so I realized that you don't need to be just 20 years old to need to know how to do these things. It's something that we all need to know. So that led me to my next question, and that is, how do you thrive in life no matter where you are in life. Because if you're lucky to live long enough, you know that life has lots of pieces to it. It has the wonderful pieces. You fall in love, maybe you have a career, maybe you become a parent, you travel, you have a passion. And it also has the difficult, challenging times. There may be illness, divorce, loss. And how do you navigate those different experiences in a way that I call skillful? It doesn't mean you're going to be jumping up being happy every moment. But if you can navigate in a way that's skillful, you will thrive. 
And so trying to figure out what does that mean led me to a researcher at USC. And his name was Joel Millam, and he works in the area of preventive medicine. And what he studies is the impact of major life events on people. So I called him up, and I said, Joel, do you think when difficult things happen in life, you know, the really hard stuff, do you think that it's possible to bounce back? And he said, yes, Darlene, it is very possible that you could have something hard happen and bounce back to be the person that you were. But actually, there's something beyond that. And I said, well, what could be beyond that? He said, it's possible to not only come back to the person you were, but it's also possible to go and become stronger, to grow, and to be more integrated than you were before. To not be less than you were, or even the same that you were, but to be more. And that is positive growth, also called post-traumatic growth. Now, when I heard this, I got very excited, because at the time, I had never heard this before. I've heard of post-traumatic stress, but I hadn't heard of post-traumatic growth. So I immediately wanted to know more about it, partially because there was this skeptical, skeptical side of me that wanted to know, is this, can this really be true? So I started to look at the research, and what I found out that it is indeed true. And as you think about it, it makes sense. One of the things that we're learning from neuroscience is this concept of neuroplasticity. And what that basically means is that your brain is capable of growing and changing throughout your lifespan. There was a time when we used to think that your brain kind of stopped and it was fully baked when you were about five or six or maybe 20, and that was it. But what we're learning now is that you continue to grow and evolve throughout your entire life. And so it makes sense that when things happen, you can adapt and you can grow from them. So one of the things I always want to know is how. It's wonderful to have theories. It's wonderful to have science. We need that. But we need a strategy. How do I grow? How do I become more than I was before? And that set me off into finding out what strategies we can use and t strategies that we can teach people to use so that they can have these experiences. So I'm going to share with you five resilience strategies. And these strategies will be relevant to you whether you're trying to reinvent yourself or you're going through a difficult time or you're just dealing with San Diego traffic. They can be relevant to you even if your life is going really well and you just want to enhance where you are. So they're both preventative and prescriptive. So what I want to do is to set the stage a bit so that you can get a little bit of context about where these strategies are coming from. The first premise is to understand that we are interactive beings. And that means that we have thoughts and we have emotions, and we have a physical body that interacts with each other. And you probably already know this. How many people um, have found that when you're really stressed out, you wind up getting a cold? Right? Okay. How many people find that when you don't get enough sleep, the next day you're not so friendly to be around? Okay, so that's the way our body and our emotions interact with each other. 
And you might say, well, that's kind of well-known. Everybody knows that. But you know what? It didn't always be that. It, it wasn't always that way. There was a time when the belief was that the mind and the body were two separate things. And that was postulated by this person here, for all you philosophy majors, Rene Descartes, in the 1600s, postulated the idea of dualism. And what he said is almost as if there was an imaginary dotted line that ran across our neck and said, everything above our head, this is where our thinking and our, and our feelings are, and everything below is our physical emotions, and never the twain shall meet. But of course, we're learning now that that's not quite so true. Researchers like Candace Pert in her book, Molecules of Emotion, is saying that, that our body is an interactive system, and our brain and our organs are all speaking to each other. And not only that, but if we know how, we can jump into the conversation. So I want, the reason I'm telling you this is because in order to be resilient, we need to address all of those areas. We need to address the mind and the body as part of our strategies. So let's start by looking at the first area here. So this is the biopsychosocial model that I'm talking about. So it's saying here, we're looking at to be resilient, psychology, our biology, and also our social structures, the people in our life, the support systems, and well-being lies at the center of all of those. So the strategies I'm going to share with you address all of those. So let's look at the first one, and that is cultivating optimism. Now, one of the things we know about optimism is optimistic people tend to live longer, heal faster, and generally have less depression and less anxiety than people who are pessimists. Now, for the optimists in this room, you're probably thinking, that is incredibly wonderful news. And for the pessimists, you're thinking, great, now I have to be optimistic too. Okay. <laughs> but the good news is, you can learn this. As a matter of fact, 20% of people are born optimistic. The other 80% of us can learn the strategies to be more optimistic. But here's the rub. Don't you think it's really easy to be optimistic when everything in your life is going well? Right? Finances are good. Health is good. Sure, I'm happy. I'm very optimistic. But what happens when things are not so good? Then what do you do? How do you be optimistic then? Do you, like, put on that fake smile? Everything's really fine. I'm doing really well. Right? How do you do that? Fake platitudes? So in order to answer the question of how do you be optimistic when life is not so good, we first need to define what we mean by optimism. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask you two questions. First question. How many people think being optimistic is about being happy? If you're an optimistic person, it means being a happy person. Raise your hand. Okay. How many people would say optimism is about being a positive person? Raise your hand. Okay. It was a trick question. It's actually neither. It's neither. And the reason we know that is because of our second rock star, Martin Seligman. He's a former president of the American Psychological Association. And like Dr. Jesty, he said psychology has studied so much about what's wrong with us why not study what's right with us? And so he decided to look into the area of optimism. 
But here's the interesting piece about this that I think is so inspiring about him. Dr. Seligman would readily admit to you that he is a depressive person. And how do we know this? Well, he shares a story when he was gardening. He was in his 50s. He was in his yard gardening with his young daughter, Nikki, who was five at the time. And Martin Seligman liked when he gardened. He likes to keep things, you know, moving along and very orderly. And she was running around throwing grass and weeds in the air and making a big mess. And he yelled at her, stop it. So she ran off. And then she came back. And she said, Daddy, do you remember how I used to whine all the time? He said, I do. Do you remember when I was about five, I kind of stopped whining? I, I remember that, Nikki. Do you know why? Because I made a decision. When I was five, that's it. I'm not whining anymore. And if I can learn to stop whining, you can learn to stop being so grumpy. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes, what he realized is, you know, wait a minute, maybe she's onto something. She stopped whining. Is it possible that I can be more optimistic? What's wrong? He said, here I am in my 50s. I'm surrounded with my wife and my children, who he describes as rays of sunshine. Why am I not more optimistic about things? And so he thought, can I teach myself to be more optimistic? And if I can, then can I teach others as well? Well, that day in the garden not only changed Seligman's life, but it changed the course of psychology. And he began to study positive ways of being in the world. And what he found through numerous studies and a charge to other psychologists to study this as well is that, yes, indeed, you can learn to be more optimistic. And there's many things you can do. I want to share with you today one of those things. And that is this. People who are optimists tend to see their difficult times as temporary. So that means, if that's all it is, I'm seeing my difficult times as temporary, then that means you can be unhappy, and you can be sad, and you can still be an optimist. Because the point is to not look at everything that happens to you as being permanent. Now, one of the ways you can do that, and here comes the strategy, is to start by looking at your language. There's two words that we use that are the antithesis of optimism. And here they are. People who are in hard times that tend to use the word always and never tend to be less likely to be optimists. So let me give you an example. I always fall off my diet instead of I fall off my diet when I eat out. That's an optimistic statement. She never calls me. She hasn't called me lately. I'll always be sad. I feel sad today. So what he learned is that when people see their difficult times as permanent, they're more likely to be depressed. Because what you're saying is whatever misery I'm in now is going to last for the rest of my life, and that is, quite frankly, depressing. 
So, so think about your own life and think about the words that you use when you describe your situations and how often you may or may not use the words always and never. Now, you may be thinking, okay, I get that, that you got a point, but here's the thing. I am dealing with something in my life that is indeed permanent. It may be an illness. It may be a loss. It is always going to be that way. So what are you asking me, to be in denial? No, actually, it's true. There are certain situations that are difficult that may be permanent, but the way we feel about them may change. And we know this from Dan Gilbert, who is a psychologist at Harvard University. He coined a term he called affective forecasting. Affective forecasting. And that what that means is that our ability to imagine what our feelings will be in the future. And what he found is we're really not so good at it. The things we think are going to make us really happy, like winning the lottery, turns out they made us happy for a little while, but not as happy as we thought. And the things that we thought would devastate us for the rest of our lives, it turns out over time we adapt just like neuroplasticity tells us, and we change. And so understanding that whatever the situation is, if we look at things not as permanent, that that's one way that we can start to become more optimistic. So what optimists do, and this is really the important part of it, optimism is not about being a Pollyanna or sugarcoating things. Optimism is about being a realist. And you look at things as they are, but not worse than they are. You look at things as they are, but not worse than they are. And it turns out that the way we look at the world impacts not only our mindset, but it also impacts our very aging. And that brings us to our second goal, and that is shifting your focus. And I want to share with you the next rock star, and that is Ellen Langer, from Harvard University, a social psychologist. I just love her. She is such a maverick in the way she reconceptualizes how we see the world and how we look at aging. And if you have a chance to read any of her books, I highly recommend them. And she did something, a study that was just so amazing. She wanted to know what would happen if you looked at the world in a completely different way. And so what she did is she got a group of men. They were between 75 and 80 years old. And she sequestered them in a country inn for five days. And she gave them this direction. Now, this study was happened in the late 70s. She wanted to try to see if she could bring back the mindset that they had 20 years earlier when they were 55. So she said to them, and I want to read this, we are not asking you to act during these five days as if it is 1959, 20 years ago. We are asking you to let yourself be who you were 20 years ago in 1959. And so to make that happen... They created a simulation as if it was actually that day in 1959. In everybody's room was the most recent copy 
of the Saturday Evening Post for everyone to read. They watched sporting events from that day in 1959. They watched the most popular television show of the day in 1959. They talked about things in the present tense. They dressed as if it was 1959. They ate the food that people ate in 1959. And they heard speeches by our current president, Dwight Eisenhower. After five days, they did a series of tests on the men. And I want to read to you, so I get this accurate, exactly what they found. After five days, the changes were dramatic. The men's vision and hearing had improved. Their memories were sharper. Their hand strength and dexterity increased. Their joints were more flexible. Their scores on IQ tests were higher. They acted more independently. And as evidenced by before and after photographs, their faces looked an average of three years younger. Isn't that remarkable? Now, Nothing about them was different from the previous week except where they had placed their attention. So what does this have to do with you? Should you go uh, the Sheraton down the w- road for a week and lock yourself up and watch uh, movies? So let me, let's do a little bit of experiment. I know it's kind of dark in here, but let's see if we can do this. I want you to look around the room, and I want you to notice everything that is blue. Okay? It could be the walls, it could be somebody's clothes, somebody's eyes, somebody's shirt. Notice everything around you that's blue. The shades, the nuance, really take it in. Okay, now I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to recall everything that you saw that was blue. Visualize it. See it, imagine it. Okay, now open your eyes and remember everything you saw that was red. It's not so easy, right? It was right there, but you didn't see it. It's not that it didn't exist, it's that you weren't looking for it. You weren't noticing it, right? So what Langer would say is that we are cognitively primed, which means we are kind of invested in looking at things in a certain way. And when we look at things in a certain way, it impacts our whole being. Another rock star who has another spin on this that I like is Aaron Beck. Aaron Beck is uh, still alive, 93 years old, been married 62 years, still actively working in his center in Pennsylvania. And he has a theory that's that's called selective abstraction. And what that means is that when we look at things, instead of looking at the whole thing, we tend to find one small thing and we zone in on that. So just like I asked you to look at the blue, You didn't notice the red because you were so busy looking at the blue. And what he said, this is what we do in life. We tend to look at one piece of something, and oftentimes that piece is a negative piece. So an example might be if you're a teacher, and you're doing this really great lecture, and everyone's engaged and taking notes and really actively listening, but there's one boy in the back that's sleeping. 
and you notice that one boy and you think, I must not be doing a very good job, he's sleeping. Now, of course, he could have been up all night on Netflix watching movies, but you're thinking, I'm ignoring all of the engaged students and I'm focusing only on the negative student. And so by shifting our motion, shifting our focus, we can change the way we feel. So why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, we can thank our biology. It is a, an adaptation of our brain. And it was very, very helpful a long time ago. When we were living during the cave times, it was very helpful to look all around my environment for something that could kill me. Might be a tiger, it might be a storm, might be something that could harm me. And if I developed the ability to always look for something negative, I would survive. And what happened is, people who learned to look for negative things did survive to pass their genes on to us. So it is a tendency that we have to look for what's negative. So what we need to do is actually train our brains to look for things that are positive. And again, because we know that we can actually do that, we can train our brains, um, we need a strategy, right? We need to know how do we do this. Now, one of the things that's become very popular is the thought of gratitude journals. How many people have kept a gratitude journal or they know about gratitude? Okay. Really, if you think about a gratitude journal, it's exactly what Aaron Beck is talking about. It's, an, it's a very purposeful activity to teach you to actively look for the red when your life maybe is filled with blue. Okay? Now, if you think this is kind of a self-helpy thing, which I must be honest, I did, it turns out that that's not the case at all. There's been research that's been done uh, by Emmons and McCullough, and they wanted to see if gratitude really could make a difference on how people felt. So they took a bunch of people, and they broke them into three groups. One group, they said, we want you to write those things for 10 weeks. We want you to write about those things in your life that you are grateful for, things that are good, things that are positive. The other group, we want you to write about those things that are a hassle, those things that are annoying to you over the course of the week. And the third group was the control group, and they just could write whatever they wanted. So the people in the gratitude group wrote these kinds of things. Waking up in the morning, the generosity of my friends, my family, a sunny day, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> the people in the hassles group wrote things like, my finances are depleting fast. I did a favor for a friend who didn't appreciate it. I couldn't find parking. I burned the macaroni and cheese. Taxes. There it is again. So um, what he found over the course of this 10-week study, which so we're talking a little over two months, is those people who wrote about the things for which they were thankful, things that were good in their life, showed that they were more optimistic more satisfied with their lives, and had more energy. And they also turned out to be 25% happier 
than the people in the con control group. And that happened over the course of just 10 weeks. Now, I thought this was a great study. It was very elegant. It was very inspiring. Except I had one question. What happens if the hassle in your life is a lot more serious than you burn the macaroni and the cheese? Right? What happens if it's something really serious? What would happen then? Could a gratitude journal help you? I had my doubts. Well, I guess they must have been thinking the same thing. So they replicated the study, and they administered it for, this time, only 21 days, three weeks, to people who had serious, life-threatening, and debilitating illnesses that were permanent. And they asked them to focus on the things on which they're grateful. And what they found over the course of the 10 weeks, I'm sorry, three weeks, is that they became more optimistic, more satisfied with their life, and they slept better than the people in the control group. And we all know what happens when you don't sleep well, right? That was huge. So Martin Seligman, our other rock star, did something similar. He asked people to write one, for, for five days in a row, every day, write three things that went well today. And over the course of one week, people were able to increase their happiness scores from the 15th percentile to the 50th. One week. So if you would like to give this a try, this is what you would do. For 21 days, try writing three to five things that went well for you or that are good. And I urge you to look for the smallest things because our life really is lived in those smallest moments. There was a short line at the bank. There was a sunny day. I had a good conversation. The chair I'm sitting in is very comfortable. Look for those things and write about them. So that's our second strategy. So now we're, we're looking for things that are going well in our life. We're seeing things for as they are, but not worse than they are. We're looking for the red. We're noticing the good. This might leave you with the impression that in order to be resilient, you have to take difficult feelings and maybe shove them under the rug. And nothing could be further from the truth. What we said is we don't want to put on fake platitudes. And I want to tell you a story, a true story, about a woman that I'll call Joyce. When she learned that she had breast cancer, she um, went to the hospital and had a single mastectomy. And when she came home during her recovery, a lot of her friends came to see her. And they really wanted to be positive so that they could lift Joyce's spirits. And they said, you know what? You have so much to be grateful for. At least you're alive. And another friend said, you know what, Joyce? <clears throat> this could have been so much worse. It could have been both breasts. But it was only one. And finally, the third person came to see her, and she said, you know what, Joyce? This is a terrible thing that's happened, and I'm very sorry. And in that moment, Joyce felt seen, and she felt heard, and she was able to acknowledge what had happened to her. And so much time when you hear about think positive, be positive, um, it negates the concept that sometimes things in life are hard. And in order to move forward, you have to take a minute and look at where you are. And that's what Joyce found. 
that she was able to move forward, but not until she had really fully acknowledged where she was. Now, not everybody needs this, but my guess is most of us do. And so, how do we process our difficult emotions? We need a strategy. So this introduces you to my, my next rock star, James Pennebaker from the University of Texas. And what he believes is that when you express your difficult emotions, not only will you be happier, you'll be healthier. And he set out to prove it. What he did was he got a group of college students and he broke them into two groups. And one group he said, I want you to write about the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to you and really express what it felt like, go back in time and write about it for 15 minutes for four days in a row. And if you run out of things to say, write it the same thing again. The next group he said, I want you to write for 15 minutes, four days in a row, about what your room looks like. Your bedspread, your pillow, your clothes. And then he collected all of the responses at the end of the study, and he started to read what he had found. And I remember sitting in the biomedical library at UCLA reading this. It was very, very emotional. One, girl, one student wrote, when I was about six years old, my grandma was coming over to visit, and my mom said, you've got to pick up all your toys because grandma's coming. And she said, I'll do it in a minute. I'll do it in a minute. Well, she never did it. Grandma came over. She slipped on the toy and broke her hip. She was rushed to the hospital. They needed to operate, and while she was on the table, she died. And this girl said, not a day goes by when I don't think that I killed my grandmother. Can you imagine? Another young man said, when I was young, my dad took my sister and I into the backyard and said, your mother and I are getting a divorce because ever since we had kids, we haven't been happy. <laughs> so as Penn and Baker started reading these stories, can you imagine what he was thinking? What have I done? What have I done? I've re I'm, I'm triggering these horrible memories. I'm re-traumatizing these people. Um, you know, what? What have I done? And what he found is, yes, people were agitated. They were sad for about 60 to 90 minutes. After that, they felt better. They felt happier. They felt more optimistic than the people who wrote about their room. Not only that, but they had taken blood samples from everyone prior to the study, and they found that the people who wrote about their traumas had higher functioning immune systems, and less visits to the student health center. So the point is that allowing ourselves to release our difficult feelings can actually be very healing. But he found that there's a specific way that you want to write to get this benefit. And I want to share that with you so that if this is a strategy that you think would be helpful, you can try it. The first thing you do is when you're having a bad day, Write about what you're feeling for 15 minutes for three to four days in a row. If you run out of things to say, say the same thing again. You uh, don't have to save it. <clears throat> it's not a diary. You can write it on your computer if you want and then delete it. It doesn't matter. The next thing is to be sure when you're writing 
to express your very deepest feelings and thoughts. And so that's why you may want to toss it out, because if it has to do with somebody that might have access to it and you're saying terrible things, uh, you might want to get rid of it, the evidence. Um, But the third thing is the most important part, and that is that once you've written something, you want to explore what you're writing and ask yourself questions. What is it about this that upsets me so much? What is it that I need to do to feel better? Now, you might find that there is something you can do. I need to make that phone call. I need to look for a new job. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. And so then the question becomes, how do I soothe myself in the middle of the fact that there's nothing I can do? Maybe I should call a friend, go for a walk, play the piano. So this was a very pivotal study. And... Not only can this increase your resilience in life, but other researchers have found that there is a piece to the positive growth part, the post-traumatic growth. Jennifer Powles from Northwestern University asked a group of women who were 52 years of age to reflect back on their lives since they were 21 years old and asked themselves, think of the most confusing and discouraging time in your life since college the one you felt had the most impact on your values and how you see the world. And these women wrote about all kinds of things, health problems, financial crises, divorces, all types of traumatic things. And what she found is that those women who were able to identify a positive transformation in themselves as a result of the trauma were not only happier, but they were healthier. Now, I'm not saying that it was positive thinking. I'm saying that they asked themselves, what did I learn from this? So women wrote things like, I discovered that I'm stronger than I thought I was. I'm better at creating boundaries with people. I have a better appreciation of the value of my own life. I have a new sense of purpose. So ask yourself, in addition to writing or in place of it, when difficult times happen, what is it that you've learned about yourself that maybe you didn't know before? So we're processing our difficult emotions now. We're allowing ourselves to express them, to learn from them. We're trying to look at our language and lessen our use of the word always and never. We're trying to find the good. We're trying to look for the red. And all of these things involve us as single people. But one of the things that we know is that we need other people in our lives to thrive. And if you remember the circles that I showed you, there's psychology, there's biology, and then there is the social connection part. Have you ever called somebody to talk about a problem, and even though they didn't help you at all, you hung up and you kind of felt better? That is the power of connecting with others. And research shows that if you have just one person in your life that you can connect with, you're ten times less likely to be depressed. There was a seminal study that was done here in California, in Alameda County, where they tracked 7,000 Californians over the course of nine years to try to figure out what is it that makes people healthy and thrive? And they looked at how, you know, what they ate, did they exercise, did they smoke, 
What kind of connections did they have? And they were shocked by what they found. What they found is that those people who had social support, that would mean family or friends or a a community of worship or volunteerism, any form of connection with somebody else, lived longer than the people who did not. And as a matter of fact, when you compared those people who had strong social connection and they smoked or they were obese with people who had a lot of healthy behaviors but they didn't have social connection, those people lived longer. One study calculated that being isolated without connection is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So finding a way to connect with others is very important. The question is, why would this be so powerful? Well, there's a lot of different reasons and a lot of theories. But Dr. Shelley Taylor from UCLA found that when we connect with other people, and this goes back to our cave uh, physiology, our cave-like physiology, that it stimulates the calming parasympathetic part of our nervous system. They did a study where somebody had to get up and give a speech, which most people would think is like the most horrifying thing you could do in life. And they had somebody in the audience that every time when the person would get up to give their speech, a stranger just smiled and nodded. And just by doing that, the person's blood pressure immediately dropped and the calming part of our nervous system kicked in. So you don't even have to know the person to have a benefit. Imagine if you did know the person. So, um, so this is a very powerful thing. By calming our bodies, it lowers the level of cortisol, which is our stress hormones. And when our stress hormones remain elevated for a long time, it can lead to disease. So you can kind of see the pathway, and it makes sense. So the question is, How do you get more connection in your life? You might be thinking, well, that's a good thing, but I'm kind of shy, or I'm an introvert, or great, now I have to meet more people too, all right? So, well, actually, as I said, you only need one person, and Robert Putman from Harvard University found out that you really only need to connect with other people once every three weeks (laughs) to get a benefit. So if you're busy or you're shy, this is a benefit. So so how can we do this? How can we connect with others? Well, obviously, one is face-to-face. And that is finding ways to seek out other people. Again, doesn't need to be a whole gang. Just needs to be one person who cares about you. Could be go to a movie, you know, um, get on the phone and talk to somebody, but find a way to connect with a person who cares about you. The other thing has to do with technology. When we think about technology, we think about it as this thing that disconnects us. And that is true, it can. But what they found in one study is that people aged 65 years and up who are on some type of social networking site like Facebook have better health and better social relationships than people who are not. The study shows that only about 4% of people over 65 are using sites like Facebook. 
So you could be missing out on an opportunity for wellness by going online. The next thing is our connection doesn't have to be human. It can be furry. And I'm sure a lot of people who are pet owners would concur with this. One study, they looked at people age 60 and over who had ad- adopted a cat. And after one year, those people had less anxiety, less depression, and had greater life satisfaction than those who did not have a pet. And it doesn't have to be a cat, could be a dog, could even be fish. Right? They did studies looking at people who are surrounded by fish. The, the point is that as human beings, we are designed, we are wired to connect with other human beings. We could have a whole talk all just about this, what happens when you put a plant on your desk. Right? It's that, it's that living thing that we need that connection in order to thrive. So... We're connecting with other people. We're looking for the red. We're dropping always and never. We're trying to look for the good. We're writing the gratitude. The last of our skills is to be present. How many people would say you spend some time thinking about the future? Anybody that does not have their hand raised, I do not believe you. All right. How many think, spend any time thinking about the past? Okay. All right. We are human beings, and this is what we do. We think. Our brain is designed to think. And um, there's nothing wrong with thinking. And it's good to think. We need to plan things. We need to figure things out. We need to figure out what we're going to do with our 401K. We need to figure out where we're going to go next week. How are we going to get here? Where are we going to park? We need to think. And we need to look back at the past to help us make sense of where we've come. Those are good things. But most of us spend a lot of our time thinking more than we are present. And what science is beginning to show us is that when you have the ability to learn how to be present, amazing things happen. You heal faster. You live longer. You recover from disease better. Not only are you less likely to be depressed, anxious, or worried, but you're also more likely to be calmer, relaxed, more peaceful. Things roll off your shoulders more. So in order to do this, be present, we need a strategy. And that strategy is mindfulness meditation. How many people here have ever done mindfulness meditation? Lots of people. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about what that is and what it can mean to you. Mindfulness meditation is, became very popular in the United States from our very first scientific rock star, John Kabat-Zinn. And he used it uh, back in the 70s at the University of Massachusetts Hospital for those patients who had seen their physicians and were dealing with chronic pain The physicians had done everything they could do, and they didn't really know what else to tell their patients. And so John Kabat-Zinn said, what if we try meditation, which at the time was so laughable uh, that, you know, the fact that he even did it was considered very fringe. And, but what he started to learn is that he was able to work very effectively with people who had chronic pain using 
this technique where he taught people how to train their brain to focus on the present. As he defines it, mindfulness is purposefully focusing on the present without judging it as good or bad. In order to do that, you really have to practice because that's not an easy thing to do. It sounds simple, but it's not. Now, Richard Davidson, one of our rock stars, is at the University of Wisconsin. And he decided that he was going to start studying the impact of mindfulness on the brain. And so he began working with the Dalai Lama. And he started studying the brains of monks who had been hours and hours meditating. And what was it happening in their brains that was different? And he found that there was a part of their brain right behind their left eye called the left prefrontal cortex. And that part of the brain is the section where more contentment, more calmness resides. And the longer people started to meditate, the more they were able to turn that part of their brain on. And so they wondered, could we teach your average person who doesn't sit on a mountaintop, the person who wants to do the laundry and go to Vons, can that person learn how to use mindfulness and turn on that part of their brain too? So they started teaching people how to do this. One study that was done by Shauna Sapiro in Australia, not Australia, Arizona, one group, she said, one group that's really, really stressed out are medical students. Really, really stressed out. So she broke them into two sections, and one group just did what they were doing. The other group got eight weeks of mindfulness training. At the end of the eight weeks, the mindfulness group had a 50% drop in their anxiety, a 50% drop in their depression. And the piece of this that's so fascinating is that nothing in their life had changed. They were still going from morning to night, classes and working. What had changed was their brain. So what we're finding now is that it is possible to change your brain just by being focused on the present. A recent study at UCLA found that when they taught people aged 55 to 85 an eight-week class in mindfulness, their immune functioning improved, their risk factors for heart disease went down, and their loneliness levels were reduced in eight weeks. And the piece that I just found that I think is really amazing is Harvard University's Sarah Lazar found that if you meditate for as little as 10 minutes a day, that within days you can actually start your brain changing. I think that's very compelling. So this is the reason why we're hearing so much about it. CEOs from Ford to Google are meditating. They're teaching their staff to meditate. Kids in elementary school are learning how to meditate. Doctors are prescribing it to patients to help them sleep better, to help them with chronic illnesses. It's, it's really kind of swept our country for very good reason. And so I wondered if you might like to do a very brief mindfulness exercise right now. 
and just kind of get an experience of it if you haven't already tried it before. Would you like to try that? Okay. Now, one of the things that I did in my class, when I first started teaching this, um, Danielle and I were talking about this earlier, is in the early 90s, people thought this was really weird. They thought, and I said, when you think of meditation, what do you think of? And they said, hippies, um, gurus. So uh, I had to really bring in some science. So I hooked them all up to biofeedback meters. And what happened is after a 10-minute meditation, their skin temperature in some cases went up 10 to 15 degrees. They didn't do anything. The power of their focus caused their parasympathetic nervous system to kick in, and their hand, as a result, got warmer. And when they realized that they had that much power over their bodies, they were hooked. And, and we continued to meditate for the remainder of the quarter, 10 weeks, and many of my students continue to meditate for the rest of their lives. I hear from them, and they're in their 30s and their 40s, and they're still meditating regularly. So let, let's start with doing something very, very simple. Let me start by saying that meditation is not necessarily relaxation, although you can become relaxed when you meditate. It's really training your brain to focus on the present moment and accepting it for whatever it may bring you. So I'd like you to start by closing your eyes and just getting relaxed in your chair. And since the part of our body that we associate most with our constant and endless thinking is in our head, we're going to go the other direction, down to our feet. And while I'm guiding you, I'm going to bet that you're going to have a thought about something. And when you do, just allow it to be there and silently say to yourself, a thought, and come back to my words. If you find yourself thinking, I hope I'm doing this right, a thought, come back to the sensation. I've got to go somewhere after this. A thought, come back to the sensation, okay? So let's begin by just bringing all of your attention to your feet. And notice how your feet feel against the floor. Notice any sensations that you might have the feeling of your shoes or your socks against your skin, the pressure and the firmness of the ground against your feet. Just become aware of all the sensations in your feet, even noticing your toes and what they feel like as your shoes press against them. And just observe them, almost as if you're watching a television show. No need to change anything, just notice. Are your feet cold? Are they warm? Just become aware. And then move up your legs to your shins, up to your knees. And just become aware of your knees. Notice how they bend. You didn't need to tell them to, they just knew how to do it. 
And notice the sensation of your pants or your shirt or your skirt against your knees. How does that feel? And moving up your legs to your thighs. And just become aware of how your thighs feel. Notice the sensation of how they press against the chair. What does that feel like? Notice the feeling of your clothes against the skin of your thighs and just observe it. And moving up your body to your stomach and just notice the sensations in your stomach. Notice how you're breathing in and out without telling your body to do it. Becoming aware of how your shirt feels against the skin of your stomach. Noticing the softness of your clothes. Moving up your body, past your chest, past your neck, to your face. And take a deep breath in through your nose. Hold it for a moment. And then as slowly as you can, let it out through your mouth. Just notice what that feels like to breathe. Something you do every day and you never really notice. Breathe in again through your nose. Hold it for a moment and then breathe out. And one last time, breathe in, hold it and breathe out. Becoming aware of your body sitting in the chair and what it feels like to sit and what it feels like just to be here in this room. Take one last breath and then whenever you feel ready, open your eyes. that feel? Was that hard? So that's basically what mindfulness is. It's training yourself to stay focused on this moment. And one of the best anchors to this moment is your feeling, your sensations, your breath. Because your breath doesn't live in the future. It doesn't live in the past. It only lives in this moment. And so it's a wonderful thing to focus on. And if you find your mind thinking thoughts, one person said to me, I tried to meditate, but I was a failure. I said, how are you a failure? 
And he said, because I thought too much. Well, thank, that's like welcome to being alive, right? It's actually the very act of noticing that you're thinking and bringing your mind back that is building your mindfulness. So the goal is not to stop thinking. That probably is not going to happen. The goal is to notice when you think, come back. And every time you do, it's like lifting a weight and building a muscle. The muscle is focus. And the benefit goes to your emotional well-being and your physical well-being. So if that's a strategy that appeals to you, try even five minutes. You don't have to sit for a really long time. Um, I know after I became a, a parent, this idea of sitting and meditating, well, that was gone. <laughs> and so I used to do it in the shower or in the car when I got to work a little early. Find little moments. It doesn't have to be hours. It could be five minutes. Whatever you can do is going to be beneficial. So, so those are some of the strategies that we, we could talk about many, many others. But these are just the five Cultivating optimism by reducing your use of the word always and never. Seeing things as they are, but not worse than they are. Shifting your focus to find the good, to look for the red. To write about three things that went well today. To process your difficult feelings. To allow yourself to express what you feel and to be transformed by your experiences to connect with others, whether they be people or animals, because we are hardwired to connect with living things. And when we do, we're healthier. And to be present through mindfulness by focusing on this moment. And so for me, it's nice that in addition to knowing about Freud's psychosexual stages, and how to get a rat to press a lever for a food pellet, that now I have an emotional toolkit. And in that toolkit are these strategies that I and my students and you hopefully can use to thrive in your life. Because the issue is not to never fall down. We're human beings. We will all fall down. Resilience is having these skills to know how to get up. And once you get up, learning from the experience that you've had, that's the basis of positive growth. And so I hope that you go out and try some of these. I don't suggest that anyone is right for any one person. You are your expert on your own life. And you know yourself better than anybody. And finding that one go-to strategy that you can rely on is really important. It may be one of these five. It may be something different. It may be exercise, which we didn't even get into. It could be music. It could be watching funny movies. It could be anything. But have a go-to strategy that you can use. And as you start to learn these things, as a surfer, you may find it's a little bit tricky you may go home and say, wait, what was that breathing thing? What was those two words I'm not supposed to say? But once you start to practice, the goal is that we can all navigate our lives skillfully, and that is the basis of resilience and thriving. And that is what I hope for all of you. Thank you.
Okay, so the question was asking about the impact of mindfulness on people with ADHD. Um, to be honest, I'm not really clear on the research as it relates specifically to ADHD, but I can say that this has been used across all types of people, all ages of people. It's been particularly effective with children. Um, I would imagine that the brain structures, I don't know if maybe Dr. Justine knows anything about this. Uh, do you know anything about this mindfulness as it relates to ADHD? Yeah, I, I don't know specifically. I'd have to look at the research, but I would imagine that it's one of those strategies that I certainly, given the research, would try. Uh, what I, you may want to modify it, though. What I found when working with students, I was very excited about the idea of mindfulness, and I thought everybody could learn it. But there were a few students who were so energetic that the idea of sitting was very hard for them. And so we adapted the mindfulness for them. Instead of sitting when they did it, they would be walking. And what they had to do, instead of sitting in class and, mind and focusing, their assignment was when they walked to class or from class, as they were walking, they had to notice their surroundings and just label what they saw without judgment. So if they were walking by a building, they would say brick, red, square, tree, green, leaf, and there would be no judgment that this is great or this is terrible. They would just focus on it while they were moving. And for those people who found that they had trouble sitting still, this was a really good exercise. Others found while they were doing their moving meditation that if they focused on the sensations in their body, that worked for them. So, for example, noticing how my feet feel as I hit the pavement every time I walk, the fact that I'm breathing a little bit more heavily, how my arms swing against my body as I move. And so that's a different focus. But either focus would be a walking meditation. And so I found with students who were either had difficulty focusing or were very anxious that that was kind of a remedy to adapt it to them. So that's something you can consider as well. Well, I th oh, so her question is she wants to know, are we born, are some people born more resilient or less resilient than others? And I do think that um, there are people who are more sensitive and others less sensitive. Uh, there are some people that appear more hardy and others less hardy. But in, like many things in life, there's an upside and a downside to everything. So for somebody who's very sensitive, Yes, they may be kind of knocked down uh, much more easily by, by simple things in life, but then they also feel the joy of life much more deeply. So every personality style that we may be born with has an upside and it has a downside. And the most important thing to keep in mind is that the things that we're talking about can be learned. As I mentioned before, about 20% of people are born optimists. They kind of come into the world thinking everything's great. And if you've ever been around kids, you'll notice that one kid's like, yay, we get to go again. We got to go there again, right? They're just, they just came out of the gate like that, right? But, but, but the others, they can learn how to, to expand the way they see the world and the things that they focus on. <laughs> okay. Um, he said the idea of walking... And looking around at everything that you see, where do you draw the line between that and multitasking? 
Okay. This is a really good question. Do you know that now uh, there's this new category in the emergency room of people who get harmed by walking while looking at their cell phone and they fall off the curb or they walk into a pole? All right. This is like a whole new category. All right. So, um, but your question is so, as, as they would say, uh, the Buddhists would say, when you walk, walk. When you look, look. So, in other words, if I'm going to be walking, and while I'm walking and I'm noticing my surrounding, I'm also thinking I better walk faster because I'm running late, and, I, and if after I leave where I'm going, I have to do this and that, then I'm, I'm doing many things. I'm not, I'm not being mindful. I'm, I'm, I am multitasking. So, when you walk, allow yourself to be present and just walk. And when you notice your mind is being pulled away, thinking, come back to look at the tree, look at the green, look at the building, look at the car, oh, I got to go over there, oh, thinking, and there, look, so, so you always pull your mind back, and every time you do, you're strengthening it, and in that sense, it, it's not multitasking, but that's a great question. Okay, so her question is asking about uh, when we look at improving resiliency, what measures are we looking at? I don't think that the measure is once you get to a 15 on the resiliency scale, you're there. I think, I think that what, what, there's many different measures that are being looked at, life satisfaction, um, well-being scales, reduction in anxiety, reduction in depression. Uh, the, the goal really is looking for significant increases in those measures of well-being. So if you are at this level of functioning and now you're at this level, then that would suggest that the intervention has been helpful or successful in making you more resilient. I don't know that there's a, a number we're reaching that when you reach that, you know, a goal like getting an A in a class, that this is what we're really shooting for. I think what we're shooting for is the ability to navigate your life in a more successful way. And I think only you know when you've reached that place where you're able to do that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, okay, so just to reiterate in case you didn't hear it, what happens when you have an up in your life and you really like it and you don't want it to go away, but chances are that at some point it will? Am I correct? Okay. Um, there is a philosophy in mindfulness that talks about grasping. I don't know if any of you have heard this before. Um, but grasping is a state where something really wonderful is happening and you want to hold it really tightly and you don't want it to ever go away. It could be if you have children, you don't want them to grow up, you don't want them to leave. Uh, it could be a moment in time that's so perfect, you know it will never be that way again and so then you're sad. And the, the theory is that with grasping, we hold on so tightly that we wind up feeling unhappiness when something good has actually happened. And so, why is this related to mindfulness? What does this have to do with that? Well, the concept behind being mindful, whether you actually sit and meditate or you're just applying it to your life, is to be with whatever's present in a, in a way of acceptance. So when something is good, 
you take in the good, and when it morphs into something else, you let it. And when something becomes different, you accept it. Now that is a philosophy that is really, really hard to live. At least I think it is. And I can only speak for myself. When I started my mindfulness practice, I was quite amazed at how much it helped me with grasping. The flip side of a grasping is called aversion. Aversion is when something is on the down, it's really bad, and you think, I will never be happy because this bad thing is happening, and I am averse to it. I don't want it, and I can't be happy until this thing is gone. So aversion and grasping are flip sides, but they both have to do with the same premise, which is that whatever is in our reality at this moment, we don't want it. Something bad happening, I don't want it to be bad. And if something is good happening, I don't want it to change. And the thought behind mindfulness is you accept the present moment without judgment and with acceptance. So what I learned for myself by practicing mindfulness is that through the training of noticing my foot and noticing my knee and noticing my breathing, you might think, well, how's that going to help me in my life, right? But what you learn to do over time is just to become aware of the movement of your breathing and the movement of your sensations without becoming attached to them being any particular way. And if your stomach starts to gurgle because you're hungry, you just notice it. If you start to get uncomfortable in the way you're sitting, you just notice it. And what starts to happen is that starts to translate into your life. And you start to see when, when experiences come into your life, you're able to be noticing it and be in it and be aware, but not so attached to it that you feel sad when it's gone or unhappy that it's here. One of my students talked a lot about how this experience made her relationships with people better because she always wanted people to be different than they were. That's aversion. And she found that by learning to be present with her breathing and allowing it to be what it was going to be, that after a while that started to translate into her relationships with people. And she started to find that her friendships got deeper and people wanted to talk to her more because she wasn't being as judging. So something as simple as observing your body sensations, which you don't quite get the link on how that's going to make my life better, it does, with practice, actually help with the very thing that you're talking about, which is grasping. And it's very much part of the human condition. Who wouldn't want to hold on to something that's wonderful? What can you do with a bad thought? That's a good one. Um, There's a lot of things you can do with a bad thought. I guess it depends what the thought is. Um, If you want to, since we're on mindfulness, so we can go with the mindfulness route, you can say, that's just a thought. And then focus on something else. I liken it to when my daughter was like two and she would start heading for the light socket. All right? I didn't say... Don't go to the light socket. It's dangerous. You shouldn't do it. I said, look at this toy over here. So what you would do is take that bad thought as if it was a toddler 
And instead of giving it a lot of attention, you just shift into something else. Notice something else. Distract yourself with something different. That's one strategy. The other strategy is from one of our rock stars, which is Aaron Beck, and the the cognitive theory, which is where you look at that thought and you you put it on trial as if you're a lawyer, and you say, how do I know that thought is true? For example, one woman told me she has this recurring thinking about how she's not a good person. And she grew up with a stepfather who was always telling her how stupid she was. And when she got older, she said, I didn't need him to tell me that anymore because it was already in my head and I was telling it to myself. How do I stop doing that? So we put the thought on trial and we started to question it. And then we said, is it true that you're really stupid? Has there, has there, have you done anything in your life that wasn't stupid? And she said, well, yeah, I'm a you know, single mom. I have a 15-year-old son. I, I've done a lot of good things in my life. And your stepfather, do you feel he really knew the real you? No, he didn't know the real me at all. And do you think that your stepfather was always correct in everything he's ever said? Well, no. So do you think it's possible that when he said you were stupid, he was wrong? Maybe. And from then on, it loosened that thought that maybe I'm not stupid. So there's different ways you can approach bad thoughts. One is to distract from them, and the other is to go into them and really pick them apart and see if they're really true. Okay, well, thank you very much. I'll stick around if anybody has any other questions. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.